You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. Well, everyone, welcome back to Two Bald Biologists podcast. We're back again with our good friend, Matt Airy. Matt, good to have you back. Glad to be back. Matt, can you explain what you do for a living for those that hadn't heard? <laughs> yeah, I'm a, a washed-up professional bass fisherman. I've been doing it for 14 years now, full-time. I do fish the Bassmaster Elite Series now, have for the last four years, and I fished the FLW Tour for 10 years prior to that. And travel the country, chase little green and brown fish, similar to what y'all do, just in a different kind of way. But I uh, have a lot of fun doing it and uh, fortunate to be able to live out my dream. Absolutely. Glad to have you here. Glad to have you again. We enjoyed the last podcast. We'll talk a little bit about biology and a little bit of fishing. Ben, what you got on the plate? So, I mean, this is kind of cool. I'll just tell you guys right now, Matt's a cool dude. I've been here with him for just a short period of time, and we've got so much common ground. It's pretty neat but we've had very different perspectives. So before we start talking too much about science and data and some stuff. Before make, y'all lose me. Yeah, <laughs> makes folks yawn. Let's hook folks in and let's talk about. I didn't mean it from that way. Like uh, you're going to make me yawn just I before might. you mentally lose me. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't know what y'all know from a scientific I'll standpoint. I'll be 100% honest. Some of this scientific stuff makes me yawn. So like full disclosure. I mean, full disclosure, go to a fish conference of a bunch of fish biologists. There's a bunch of us probably asleep while we're listening to somebody talk about fish biology. Oh, but I wouldn't be because, man, what I could learn or what, what I'd learn about what I thought I knew but really didn't know. Hey, we can get you into a fish meeting yeah. here pretty soon. You yeah. got, do I need a disguise or anything? I would let you borrow one of my shirts. Oh, I just need the green shirt. That's yeah. it. You're good to go. So let's just say, Matt, you're dropped from a helicopter somewhere. You have a bait in your pocket. And what do you want that bait to be? What do I want that bait to be? Not necessarily what the fish need for that bait to be. I want a Lunker Hunt compact frog gotcha. tied to some 50-pound braid and a big old flipping stick, big old frog rod, because uh, nothing beats a good frog bite. I like it. I like it. Yeah, And hard to argue because, I mean, a topwater bite is hard to beat. It's exciting for sure. Yeah, we were just talking about earlier doing wake baits for hybrids at Lake Norman. Yeah. And just, just boom. Yeah. Just the huge explosion in the middle of the night. It's just one of the coolest things you can do to catch a fish. I was actually talking to one of my fishing partners earlier this week, as a matter of fact. Those who know me know I live down at the coast and I fish for redfish a lot. And we were talking about how... We need to start incorporating the frogs into our arsenal. Yeah, mm, absolutely. Interesting. I mean, we fish grass, but I mean, yeah, heavy I mean, grass. It's hard to get a spook or something through in some instances. Oh, yeah, I thought you were talking about for redfish. No, yeah, I am. You are yeah, talking about redfish. I think it'll work. I think it's a perfect idea. That's pretty cool. I think I need to buy a few more frogs and tie one on. I need to give you one of those happens. compact frogs before you leave here. Well, I'll make I sure mean, we do that. It's funny how saltwater fishing... And freshwater fishing are very similar. Well, a redfish and a bass are yeah. they're very, very similar. Yeah, like if you can bass fish, you can. It might take you a little bit of time to learn it, but you can redfish. Well, and I tell folks, and I said this about all of our podcast is there's really only so many ways a big fish can eat some little fish or 
creature or something like that. So if something works when you're fishing for one species, it's good to file that away, you know, and that's why it's good to talk to people from different places and different areas. And if I'm traveling, I always like to go to a tackle store and see what's there because I might see something. You know, if I go to Minnesota, I might see something at a tackle store I've never seen before, and I might have some sort of application for what I do. Absolutely. So, Matt, we talked a lot in the last podcast that we did about some common threads of what we do as biologists and what you do as a professional angler. What are like the burning things in the bass world, maybe at a national level, but also kind of at a southeastern and North Carolina level that you guys are interested in that maybe we as biologists could help y'all understand and maybe we can learn from you at the same time? Yeah, I think one of the the hottest topics going, and it's a question in a lot of fishermen's mind, and bass anglers will argue about anything, <laughs> pretty yes, much. Yes, they will. <laughs> yes, Anglers. And anglers in general argue, but bass anglers are like the leaders of that group, for sure. People in general just argue. People <laughs> argue. That's right. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we've seen a lot of over the years, especially in the Southeast and in the Carolinas, is the introduction to a lot of our lakes, the introduction of spotted bass. And I said spotted bass, and Ben corrected me and said Alabama bass. I'm still trying to get used to it. Well, that's the first time I've heard that. So, you know, that starts a whole nother debate because you could argue with some of these fishermen around here all day that that's a spotted bass. So there's a Kentucky spot or a northern spot, as y'all call it, and then there's an Alabama bass, which is the technical name is Alabama bass, right? Not spotted bass. So forever in a day... They were spotted bass. And for anglers and for me working at Lake Norman and some other places that have them, when I'm talking to anglers, I'm talking about spotted bass because that's all they know and see, right? Sure. But they are two different species of fish. We didn't know that until probably, I don't know, maybe five to 10 years ago that they were different species. I don't know exactly when Alabama bass were identified as being different than Kentucky spots. But the Kentucky spot science nerd moment is... Micropterus punctulatus, and then the Alabama bass is Micropterus hinshali. So they are two separate species of fish. And so most of the fish that we see in North Carolina, short of a few, maybe some of our very far western counties that you see a spotted bass, they are going to be Alabama bass now. Even Carr Scott, which used to have the Kentucky spots in them, the Alabama bass have been introduced there, and they basically run the northern spots out of town. And so and when you say run out of town, to uh, not create any confusion, but you're meaning they've crossbred to the point of extinction of that purebred Kentucky spot? It depends on or the Or out-competed. Or, yeah, or out-competed. So, meaning they had died off? Yeah, at some level, sure. So I'll try to explain it, and Ben can interject because Ben lives this too. When an Alabama bass is are introduced into the reservoir, depending on the species of fish, the other bass species of fish that are there depends on how they kind of take over. So for instance, let's take Lake Norman, for example, where Alabama bass have now been there since the late 1990s. The most debated lake in the state of North Carolina. It's the most debated lake in the state of North Carolina. <laughs> it might be the U.S., and I've been around the U.S. A lot. Well, we'll jump into it both feet, and then you can disagree with me. But when they were introduced in the late 1990s, the predominant bass in the lake at the time was largemouth. And so the way they interact with largemouth is they typically outcompete them for habitat use and they kind of run largemouth away from the main points, main lake channel areas and will push largemouth into the backs of coves. And so 
what ends up happening is you get a population reduction of largemouth. That's what's happened at Norman. Largemouth now make up about 5% to 10% of the population of black bass, which is the whole family of bass in the lake. And then 90 to 95% of the fish are Alabama bass. That's the actual number. So you're talking over 90% of the black bass population in Norman is now spotted or Alabama bass. You can call them spots. I'm good with it. That's what we all know them as. (laughs) But yeah, it's that strong. Now that what ends up with that introduction is, you know, the first five to probably six years of the introduction, the Alabama bass look really good. You know, they come in, they end up being four, five, six pound fish. But then that kind of reaches a maximum level that it can do it and they still are reproducing and doing their thing and and basically the fish just kind of get smaller and smaller and smaller over time due to sheer numbers due to sheer numbers and so what we found and with an invasive fish as a fish comes into a population it shoots way up real fast and then it kind of drops down and then it's going to find its place where it just kind of oscillates back and forth over a period of time And we're getting there at Lake Norman. We're now 20 plus years into this invasion at Lake Norman. And you're starting to see Alabama bass there. Yeah, we have a lot of little fish, right? Sure, yeah. You know, a lot of pound and a quarter, pound and a half fish, maybe even smaller. But we do see some three-pound fish show up from time to time. And so we're getting into this equilibrium period with spotted bass where now, are we going to get to where spotted bass or Alabama bass, sorry, said I was going to say Alabama the whole time and I called them spotted bass. So you <laughs> see get how that horn and every time you do it wrong. Yeah, every time I do it wrong, just buzz me. But where we get with Alabama bass is we're not going to get back to where we're catching five and six pound Alabamas out of Norman. That initial four to five year peak is not going to It's not going to come back. I mean, you can never say never, but it really isn't. You're going to consistently have those pound, pound a quarter, pound and a half fish with a few three pounders mixed in. Well, and we mentioned that because when we were talking about it a little bit before the podcast, in my fishing experience, every lake, Hickory, Moss, Norman. All have Alabama bass. Yep. And when they were introduced in that first four to six years, it was unreal. Yep. It truly was. I mean, I'm talking 18 to 20 pound bags of Alabama bass. Everybody's excited. And then there it goes, starts to slowly taper off. So the exact trend that you're talking about from a biology standpoint is the exact trend that I've seen as a fisherman in our state. So now to take that one step further, now when you talk about a different set of species, when you're starting to talk about smallmouth bass and you're talking about Kentucky spots, the you know northern spotted bass, Alabama bass introductions on them are different. They don't necessarily outcompete them for habitat use. You mean if the Kentuckys are present? Yes, if Kentuckys are present or if smallmouth are present in the system, they typically don't outcompete them for habitat use. They interbreed with them. I call it gene swamping. Basically, what Alabama bass are doing is they're coming in on the spawning grounds with these other species of fish, interbreeding with them. And eventually, what you do is you end up having just more and more and more Alabama bass genes in the pool. More dominant. To the point where you get to where it becomes 100% Alabama bass genes, and those smallmouth bass genes and the spotted bass genes just go away. So that leads me to a quick question about crossbreeding. You know, they successfully seem to crossbreed more with the smallmouth and the Kentuckys, but they also, correct me if I'm wrong, they definitely crossbreed with largemouth. They do, especially early on in the invasion. Okay. Eventually what happens, but it's not nearly as dominant as it is with smallmouth and spotted bass. They're just a lot more similar in the way they act, Yeah, right? And the reason you get that interbreeding is because 
they're coming into places that largemouth bass are, like initially, right to start with. So largemouth used to be on main points at Lake Norman pretty consistently, right? And so when Alabama bass come in, they're there and they're there together. And so they, you know, they're spawning together and they're interbreeding. But as time goes on, those largemouth get pushed because of the activity that Alabama bass are doing. And they're just pushing largemouth away. And so you lose that interbreeding because they're not in the same places right, anymore. Right. But that's not the case with smallmouth and with spotted bass. Because they're still... They're still together there all the time. And what it leads to, I mean, we have examples of this. Lake Chattoog was probably... Sometime in the 90s, Alabama bass were introduced to Lake Chattoog. Smallmouth bass don't exist there anymore. Lake Fontana is a little later down the road. Lake Fontana was probably in the mid-2000s that they were introduced there. And we still have smallmouth there, but we have a lot of mean mouth. So we have a lot of cross, you know, smallmouth Alabama bass cross, but we have a lot of Alabama bass. And so we're progressing to more, every time we check it, it's more and more Alabama bass. And James is the newest culprit of this storm that's happening. And James is probably eight to nine years in now in an invasion. And we still have quite a bit of smallmouth there. But we see that mean mouth introgression going on. We see a lot of pure Alabamas going on. And so it just takes time. You know, it's generational. We talked about that earlier where it just takes time for this to happen. And unfortunately... If we don't bring smallmouth back to those situations, smallmouth probably are not going to exist in those systems anymore. And so that's the detriment of moving a fish like an Alabama bass around. So if that happens and you lose the purebred smallmouth and you have a lot of mean mouse, obviously, because that's what happens, <laughs> will they weed those mean mouse out too? Or will you just have a bunch of hybrids from there on out? You'll have a bunch of hybrids to start with. Because there's no smallmouth left, so... That's the gene swamping. You just get more and more Alabama. So your mean mouse might have started out as being 50-50 Alabama smallmouth, but then you get 80% Alabama, 20% smallmouth. So you get a 50-50 mean mouth, and then a spot or Alabama bass yeah. hybridizes with a mean mouth, and now you have a more spotted or more Alabama bass. 70-30 or something yeah, or 70, whatever. 70-30, and then that happens again, and that happens again. And before you know it, it's just a minute part of it's a smallmouth, you know. wonder if we had a introduction of all mean mouse to a largemouth fishery, would it have the same effect? I guess, I'm assuming so. Or if you put straight smallmouth in a largemouth fishery, disregard the spot altogether, would that have a similar effect? They coexist a little bit well, better. Well, because I'm thinking like northern lakes that I've been to, like Champlain, where there are no spotted bass, but there's huge populations of smallmouth and largemouth. But they're in such diverse areas that they seem to coincide and there's no problems. And that also happens where, in my former life when I was in Alabama... Where these came from. <laughs> there are largemouth bass and Alabama bass coexisting in the same lakes and doing fairly well. But it's because they're, you know, the largemouth spawn here and the Alabama bass spawn there. Right. And they already were kind of native to the area, mm -hmm. so to speak. So they've been doing it for years and years and years. Well, thousands and thousands of years. So they kind of found their own balance between each other. But it's in these new systems that things kind of get inky. So I don't think spotted bass, and Corey said it too, spotted bass aren't going to necessarily push out our largemouth bass fisheries. It's going to change our largemouth bass fisheries. But there's nowhere where spotted bass will just completely drive largemouth bass out. Yeah, everywhere I've been. You know, one of the few lakes 
what I was going to say is everywhere I've been where the Alabama bass was introduced, it doesn't seem to, no matter how long ago it was, it doesn't seem to, it does exactly what you said, Ben. It changes the fishery. Um, it changes the way we have to approach the fisheries, changes the way y'all have to approach the fisheries. But one lake that has left a question mark in my mind, and I know this isn't relative to North Carolina, but it's not too far as Lake Murray. And very interesting lake and very interesting fishery. And if you remember when it had grass years ago, then it, it completely flip-flopped because the grass went away, the herring came in. You talk about changing the dynamic of a fishery. It really changed how we had to fish that lake throughout the years. Then the spotted bass, Alabama bass, excuse me. <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> was brought into Murray or got into Murray somehow, whether it came from one of the lakes above it or some fishermen dropped them in there. They have been in there. And actually, uh, this dates back to Forest Wood Cup I fished seven or eight years ago down there, Brent Ayler weighed in a couple spotted bass. And there were several caught. Fish looked good. Fish were caught typical spotted bass ways, schooling around the bluebacks or brush piles, drop shot and things like that. Didn't seem to be a lot of fish in the lake at the time as far as Alabama bass were concerned. But to this day, it still seems very, very similar to what it was as far as the amount of spots that are being caught, the amount of spots that are being weighed in. There's very few of them. They're very scarce. But that fishery to me sets up to support a very strong spot population because of the deeper, clear water, the forage availability, the way it sets up. But the largemouth has seemed to really take a stronghold down there and still, even on the points, even on the main lake structure, even down by the dam where it's deep and clear, they still seem to dominate that fishery and have for years and years and years, even when the spots were brought in. So wonder what was different in that fishery and where the spots didn't seem to all of a sudden just explode and take over. And that's just for me as a fisherman looking at what's happened in the past 10 years. It seems to almost decline and go away. It doesn't seem to be booming, you know, like it did at Lake Norman. I think that's the one of the trickiest things as a biologist and as a resource manager is that we look at the work that's been done and the research that's been done and the studies that have been done, and we have a good idea of what is likely to happen. And as soon as we say, well, this is what's likely to happen, there's going to be one system somewhere or maybe a handful of systems somewhere where things, because of whatever reason, things are a little bit, don't work out the way that 90% of everything else would. And, and so what's tricky is, one, explaining why every lake is different and why one lake can't be exactly like another lake, but also understanding what are the dynamics that are going on, say, in Lake Murray that are keeping the spotted bass maybe at bay a little bit more than in another place like Norman. So to Corey's point earlier, that's very interesting what you told me about Norman and the largemouth being pushed in the backs of the creeks. Because, you know, as fishermen, we went through this little episode of the guys did that gossip about Norman 24-7 saying, well, you got to go to the backs of the creeks now to catch a largemouth, you know. And, and to your point, it kind of makes sense the way the bigger largemouth or the more consistent largemouth bite would be pushed away from the main lake because of the spot domination. But one of the things that kind of puts a light bulb over my head about Murray is the blueback heron population, which has absolutely exploded in that lake. Now, it seemed to me when that happened, when the grass went away and the heron came in, the largemouth stayed more relative to the main lake. And it's almost like that they stayed there because of the heron. And maybe the heron keeping, the, this is just an assumption, as a fisherman, the heron keeping those largemouth at bay on the main body of water kept those spots from really coming in and taking off as opposed to if it was a threadfin-dominated fishery or, or a bluegill-dominated fishery from a forage standpoint. Could that make sense or could that have an effect on it? Well, fish definitely follow food. 
I mean, just like we follow food, well, at least Ben and I do. <laughs> well, and the rumors of Norman having this huge blueback heron population. They don't. Correct. Like, I've been told by fishermen, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's no heron in Lake Norman. There are herring in Lake Norman. But it's a very, very small number. It is not the dominant forage species in the lake. Well, I've never, I don't fish Norman enough anymore to even witness a heron spawn or anything like they that. They do have a heron spawn. They have a threadfin shad spawn, too. But the shad spawn seems to be the dominant thing. It is the dominant fish. Now, people generally see a lot more herring around the weir wall, you know, at Marshall. Okay. So that's where people see herring kind of show up. And there are herring on the lake. I mean, we've done studies, forage studies at Norman specifically. And since the herring were introduced about the same time the Alabama bass were introduced, the late 90s, generally herring make up about 10% or less of the okay. forage population in the lake, and the rest is threadfin and gizzard shad. Okay. Threadfin is the dominant. Threadfin's like 85, 86%. Okay. It varies from year to year, but it varies a percentage point either way, usually. Got you. But yes, there are alewife, which is a herring. There are alewife in the lake and bluebacks. Mostly alewife is what we see most of the time. Back to your point, though, and back to what Ben was talking about. With an invasive fish, we're just not sure what's going to happen, you know, when we get something new into a system. There are patterns. Like with Alabama bass, if it's a clear water, low productivity lake, they tend to be able to take over that lake fairly quickly. So Lake Norman is a really good example of that, of just bang, there they are, you know, and they're crushing it and they just explode and the takeover is rapid. But you go to Lake Hickory, you know, just up the way. Hickory's not as clear, has more nutrient loading system. They haven't taken over there. There's a lot more largemouth there. There are Alabama bass there, but the jury's out. Like, because it's invasive and because it's also new, we're learning as biologists as we go. We don't have all the answers to it. A hundred years from now, will Hickory look like Norman? I don't know the answer to that because, I mean, a lot of things can change in that period of time, but it say it all stayed the same in a real turbid, high nutrient load, does it take them 100 years to take over? I don't know the answer to that because we hadn't been 100 years with a takeover yet. I can tell you in a clear water, low nutrient load, low forage base type system like Norman, we have a pretty good pattern. Car Scott's another place where they're taking over. Moss Lake down the road, Moss I Lake down the, right yeah, now. <laughs> Moss Lake down the road is taking over. Lake James, they're taking over. All these kind of a little bit clear water, a little lower nutrient level systems, those are the places where we can pattern that they will more than likely dominate. So I'm sitting here thinking about what we're talking about, and I'm wondering, you know, there's probably somebody out there listening to this. I hope they are. and uh, Bored to tears. And they're thinking, man, these guys, I was on the main channel the other day out in the middle of the lake, and I flipped under a, a boat dock, and I caught a three-pound large fish. Yeah. They don't know what they're talking about. And <laughs> I so, apologize for those people. Those are some of my people, and I'm going to apologize hey, for They're those my people, people too, <laughs> but what we're saying is it's not that there's no largemouth right. out on the main lake. I mean, fish in general have tails and no homes, you know, as a buddy of mine <laughs> once right. told me. And so it's important to realize that we're talking about the general average patterns of what these fish are doing. Same thing is you can be in the back of a cove and catch a spotted bass or Alabama bass. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that all the averages are out the window either. So just kind of keep that in mind. That there's exceptions to all this that we're talking about. And they really, especially with introduced populations, as Corey said, there really isn't a hard, fast rule. We just are trying to make educated decisions based on what we know. 
the only hard and fast rule to introduce to invasive species, and it really doesn't matter the fish. Alabama bass is a good example. Flathead catfish is another one. White perch, which is native to North Carolina, but not native to the western part of the state, is another example of a fish like this that once they start being introduced into places, they just spread. It's like COVID almost. I mean, not to bring up a sore subject, but it really is. It spreads like wildfire. If you look back 25 years ago, Alabama bass really were not on the landscape in North Carolina other than Lake Chattoog. And then all of a sudden they showed up at Lake Norman and they showed up at Moss Lake around about the same yeah. time. Yep. I mean, it wasn't too far apart. Who knows? Probably the same guy that did it. Might have been the same guy. <laughs> you know, somebody brought him I in. I don't know him, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, like I had no idea how it happened. But from that point, almost 25 years later, from that point, short of the Noose River Basin and parts of the Cape Fear Basin, these fish now exist. If you go to the Roanoke, if you go to Lake Gaston and you go to Carr Lake, they're in there. If you go to Tar River Reservoir out of Rocky Mount, we've got them in there. We actually have them in the Tar River just downstream of there. And if you come west of the Triangle area, they are everywhere. I mean, other than some of these small municipal lakes, I mean, Alabama bass are everywhere. And they're becoming the dominant black bass species in all of our reservoirs. And so who knows what it's going to look like 20 years from now. I don't have a crystal ball, you know, but right now the landscape looks like black bass as we know it in North Carolina is going to be dramatically different 25, 30 years from now when my grandkids are coming along. It's going to look different than what you and I grew up fishing and what Ben fished. It is going to be different. It might not be dramatically different, but it's going to be different. And places where smallmouth and spotted bass were historically there in our western third of our state, it will be dramatically different. I can pretty much probably guarantee that based on what we're seeing. And it's going to take either a really concerted effort in the stocking program on smallmouth, but even then, I think it's just to keep them on the landscape. I don't think it's to make them these smallmouth fisheries that we've known and loved in our western counties. And so, like, we're talking about reservoir fish, right? Reservoir smallmouth, like Lake James, Fontana, Chateau, Glenville, those places. They're not going to stay in the reservoirs. They're going to get out in the rivers. So the places like the Cane and the Toe and the Nolichucky and the Dan and all these places that have smallmouth, I have no idea what it's going to do to them. Because Alabama bass are going to get in them because they're already in those systems. Right. So it's just a matter of time. But what they do in those river systems and how they function and survive and coexist with smallmouth that are already there, I have no idea. And that's what scares us as biologists. It's yeah. a scary <laughs> time for us with black bass, for sure. I mean, I did some work on uh, some of the smaller creeks in Alabama. And there had been, there was shoal bass there, there was spotted bass there, there was smallmouth bass had been stocked there. And in some of that work we did... I'm like, Ben, what species is it? I'm like, it's a bass. Flip a it's, You know, <laughs> it's just kind of an assortment. It is. But it is interesting how all this stuff goes. And I mean, it, it's just kind of one issue or one example of the issues that we're working with in the state. And it's got a lot of attention on it because, I mean, these are still fish that folks can catch, you know, and they're weighing them at tournaments. And they're so it's definitely got a lot of folks' attention as we're moving forward. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. How long, to y'all's knowledge, have you seen spotted bass in High Rock? That's pretty new. Well, it depends on what spotted bass we're talking about. 
What? I'm just talking about the couple that I caught about 10 years ago in the BFL. Yeah. No, so <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Those fish would have been the Kentucky spots. So it's funny because when I saw it, they didn't look like, you know, we talked about the Alabama spotter, the Alabama bass being longer, leaner, skinnier. And the couple, I caught them, I tell you exactly where I caught two of them. And I was flipping a little creature bait and I caught them on, at the riprap at the 85 bridge. Mm hmm. And I caught to him. I said, that's a spotted bass. And I, I put it in the boat. And I actually, the first one wasn't a keeper. Second one was a keeper. And I put it in. It was like a two and a half pounder. Real pretty fish. Real healthy. Fat. Short. Stocky. Reminded me of what I would consider a Kentucky spot. But that's funny you said that. And that's the reason I asked. Because I know of a couple that were in there 10 years ago. But, you know, I haven't heard much about that system. So what we've seen in that that whole drainage, the Yadkin PD drainage, for those folks that are listening that don't know where we're talking about, it's kind of in the central part of the state. The headwaters is W. Carr Scott. And so huh. Kentucky huh. spots were... <laughs> I wasn't thinking that far yeah. of the system. That makes sense. So Kentucky spots were in Carr Scott for a long period of time. They were stocked, I think. I think in the 60s, I could be wrong. And so those would have been washdowns come down the Yadkin River into High Rock, which is the next reservoir. But what we have found, we didn't know it was occurring at the time, but Alabama bass got introduced into W. Carr Scott probably maybe about 10 years ago now. Okay. I could be wrong on the timing. But our biologist there, Ken Hodges, saw kind of a, what he would say is like a blip on the radar screen when he's looking at his bass data that didn't make sense to him. But he was still seeing spotted bass, what he thought was spotted bass, the same spotted bass he's always seen. And when we started genetically testing him, that blip on the radar screen that looked weird to him was when Alabama bass started showing up. And so now our Kentucky spots are gone. It's all Alabama bass there now. They've basically run the Kentucky spots by gene swamping them, you know, run them out of town for the most part. But what we're seeing now is those washdowns, those Alabamas are, we've got fish being identified out of Lake Tillery. Baden Lake, those areas that are Alabama bass. So we're getting them all down. The, yeah, everywhere. They don't stay in one spot. And that's the, you know, as biologists, if there's a take home, just please stop moving fish. Even if it's a largemouth, like if you're moving a largemouth from one reservoir to the other, please don't do that. Because there's ramifications to that. One, it's against the law. I was going to say, that's a pretty important one there. You, you got to be caught. <laughs> the blue light ramification. Well, yeah, there's a blue light ramification. So it's against the law. You can't move fish from one public body of water to another or from a private body of water to a public body of water. You just can't stock public bodies of water without a stocking permit from us. But the biggest thing is like largemouth, you're saying, oh, I can move a largemouth from here to there. Well, what if that largemouth has largemouth bass virus? And you introduce that into a body of water, and then largemouth bass virus takes hold in that body of water, and you see this massive decline like we saw in largemouth on Car Lake, John Car Lake, or Bugs Island years ago. So you have to be careful about what you're doing. In fact, don't do it. Just move the spotted bass to the frying pan, right? They do taste good. <laughs> There's nothing wrong well, with that's them. Well, that's why, yeah, that was another question I had about while we're on the spotted bass topic, if we've got time, is sure. lifted the limits at Lake Norman, right? So that's statewide. Oh, that was yes. statewide. Okay, oh, sorry. Oh, Alabama bass and spotted bass, because you really can't tell a difference between the two in the field. There is no size limit, and there is not a krill limit. And that's fairly no. recent, like two years that's ago That's been or two something. or three years ago. Okay. Yeah, and what we're trying to do is, we one, we don't want people to move them around, but we want people to thin the herd as best they can. Sure. Have y'all seen a, a positive effect from that? Because this is in my mind, and, and just me observing as a fisherman, it even doing that didn't seem like there was enough people willing to actually take large numbers of spotted bass out of the populations. Do you know, I mean, are people doing it? 
I do know people that do it. It is not on the scale that it probably needs to. So what we're really trying to do with that, we're not getting rid of Alabama bass. Sure. They're here. There's nothing we can do. But can we make Alabama bass a little bit better yeah. by thinning the herd? Because it's, it's back to herd. You yeah. know, there's only so many miles you can feed. Right. And so if we can thin the herd, like at Norman, for example, if we could actually thin the herd, we might be able to get to the four-pound, five-pound You might could see that five-year peak yeah. again one yeah, day. You, so. It takes an effort of everyone. It can't be, you know, 10 guys that are in a bass club together doing it. It takes a conscientious effort, and it takes time. You can't take your foot off the pedal. Right. You know, the pedal has to stay down. Everybody has to be doing it, and we have to keep the pedal down. Yeah, I know. I'm To your point, we've had a few fish fries, and, and I've had a few spotted bass, and they do taste delicious. And honestly, if you fry them up right, they taste very similar to a good old crappy. And I'll be honest, I got a lot of buddies. I hope they listen to this podcast because they're big time crappy fishermen. Some of them are older fellas and, and they like to go out there and keep their limit of crappy. And some of them were complaining about the crappy limits. Mm-hmm. I said, we'll go get you two or three dozen spotted bass to go with them. And then some of them, ah, yeah, them old bass don't taste good. You know, and I said, look, they're different than largemouth for sure. I said, uh, just try them and do it. But anyway, to all the guys that are listening to this that are big time crappy fishermen, keep you a few spotted bass too. That'll help everybody out in the long run. Well, and it's a different mindset, too, because, you know, we've, as bass fishermen, you know, catch and release, catch and release, catch and release has been a big thing. We're conscientious about our tournaments with aerators and ice and live whales. We're trying to keep fish alive, keep fish alive. And so for a lot of bass anglers, it's a hard shift because they're thinking, well, if I turn this loose, I can keep more. Well, and that may actually not be the case when it comes to spotted bass. You may actually be adding to the overpopulation standpoint because there's a surplus out there that needs to be thinned out. And it's not, if you take one home, it's not like, okay, well, now the population's in a plummet, you know? It's just a handful of fish. They're out competing. And if you mess up and get one largemouth, like you misidentified, right? And you take one largemouth home, it's not a big deal. There's right. enough largemouth there to still sure. do what you need to do, you know, because that's a lot of what I hear from bass anglers. Well, you know, not everybody can tell the difference between a spotted bass and a largemouth bass. I'm like, well, maybe, sure. But if you take one uh, largemouth... If you fished enough, you can tell. If you have them both side by side, you can know one's not the same as the other. And my point is, if you take 20 spotted bass or 20 Alabama bass and you take one largemouth home, it's going to be all right. Don't yeah. worry. The largemouth will still be there in the morning. Do y'all recommend... So for anybody that's going to listen and to go keep a good hefty sack of spotted bass to take home and, and enjoy a certain, I know there's no size limit and no krill limit, but would you recommend a certain size range? What what I'm getting at is what if a guy goes to Norman and he catches two of those elusive four pound spots, you know, because there's yeah. some in there, you know, but there's just not tons of them. Would you say, well, you know, it'd be better to keep 20, 12 and a half inches as opposed to these two four-pounders that you're sure. considering taking home? And I tell that to anglers all the time. If they'll talk to me, that's what I tell them at boat ramps, when, particularly when I'm at Norman. You know, if you catch a four-pound spotted bass nobody or Alabama bass, nobody's telling you to take that one home. Right. I'm talking about that foot, yeah. the 14-inch fish that they're just like cockroaches. And I don't mean it ugly, but they are. They're like cockroaches. <laughs> you go out there at certain times of the year and you're inundated with Alabama bass. Those are the fish that you need to thin the herd down because if you thin that herd, those four-pound fish have more to eat and the ones that are remaining that are of the 12 to 14-inch variety, they have more to eat and they can grow and get bigger. So, you know, it's all about that food chain and all that kind of stuff. And this holds true now that you brought the topic up. I'm really going to get down in the weeds on bass anglers and they'll probably shut me up forever. But <laughs> this holds true for largemouth as well. There are places in our state that largemouth don't do well. 
And if people would thin the herd, largemouth would do better. And that's a hard pill for bass anglers in particular to swallow. And I get that. That's not true everywhere. But from a conservation perspective, if you're trying to get bigger fish, there are some like municipal, I can think of like Lake Camac in Burlington, always had a stunted fishery in certain aspects of the fishery are stunted. And we changed the rules to let people take more of those fish home that we were trying to target to get out of the lake. And people just don't keep fish. They put yeah. them right back. I've seen that in farm pond scenarios. Yeah. Oh, for sure in farm ponds. Yeah. It's not as true in some of our larger systems that you fish a lot and that most of our anglers fish, but in these some of these smaller systems where you consistently, your largemouth are like a foot, foot and a half long almost year round, and that's all you ever see, you probably need to talk to the biologists and talk about maybe, should we be harvesting fish in that area? Because the biologists, to be honest with you, and be like, yes, you do need to be. I'll take it a step further and say, there are rules in place. We do all these surveys for reasons to make sure that the population's healthy and that these fish are sustainable. And, you know, it's crazy in this day and age, you know, in social media, somebody make a post and, you know, if, if you keep a fish that's a legal fish, you should never feel bad about that as a general rule. You know, I mean, that's why these rules are in place. And if they need to be changed, well, that's, that's what, what we're, we're going to do too. Yeah. So no one should ever feel bad for keeping a fish. I mean, that's, that's, that's what the good Lord for. put them here for was for us to have some to eat that's on right. occasion. So, Which I like to do. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's one of the things I hate to see is, and this even crosses over to hunting, which I know we're not talking about, but guys getting bashed for doing something that's perfectly legal and you know, that's what limits and laws are for. That's what y'all are for, to figure out what's best for the environment, figure out what's best for the population. And if it's legal, you know, don't ever get on somebody for doing it. What we do as biologists is we're looking the long-term future, right? We're looking for what's best for the resource far after I'm not a biologist or I'm not even here. That's what Ben and I and everybody that works for, well, I won't say everybody, but I would say the vast majority of the people that work for the Wildlife Commission that's really what we're trying to do is look for the good of the resource. And the good of the resource is the good for you too. We really value our angler inputs, people talking to us and saying, this is what we want. This is what we need. We really do value that at the Wildlife Commission. And we're trying as scientists to make sure there's stuff for you to catch and there's stuff for your grandkids to catch further down the road and be able to enjoy the outdoors in North Carolina. I just want to echo what Corey said. I had a discussion with a guy just last week, and I said, I want to hear from you two times. I said, I want to hear from you when you're mad at me, and I want to hear from yep. you when we're doing good. That's right. And I said, you can call me anytime. Because <laughs> I learn both times, right? Right. That's I'm, right. I'm going to learn something. Every time you talk to me, I learn something. Whether you're screaming at me, I don't want you screaming at me, but you can be mad at me, and we can disagree. We're not going to agree on everything. That's what makes the world go around. You know, that's what we're here for as biologists, just to listen and to learn. So, Matt, you're big into the bass scene. How can we help bass anglers moving forward, either in North Carolina or just in general? <laughs> well, I think speaking more in general terms, educating anglers on kind of how y'all have educated me today that in trusting each other, I think as anglers, we need to trust what y'all do because you're professionals at it for a reason. And, you know, the guys that fish tournaments every weekend, they know a lot about they're limited, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you talked about shocking and things like that. And and we're limited in what we catch on a hook and line, right? 
but a lot of our guys spend a ton of time on the water and they can tell you what they see as far as cycles and things like that. And that can be really good information intel for y'all when y'all go through a fishery and, and talk about actually taking samples of like an Alabama bass as opposed to a Kentucky bass. I mean, there's so much confusion on our end because I'm going to blame it on social media more than anything. You know, we are bad about getting on there and ranting about things that are extremely inaccurate because we're not getting it from the right resource and we're just starting to form our own opinions. But I think trusting each other is one of the biggest things moving forward and helping to improve our fisheries. But some of the things that y'all are doing now, the experimental deal with the F1s at Lake Norman, which we haven't really talked about yet, but that's something that obviously the fishermen wanted. There's a lot of fishermen. And when you start talking F1s, fishermen's we start getting big bug eyes and start lighting up like little Christmas trees and getting excited. But from what y'all have told me, that's it's not like a cure-all. It's not like, it. you know, we're going to put F1s in here and in five years, everybody's catching 10-pounders. You know, it's not like that. So y'all run an experiment like you're doing at Lake Norman. And is it fair to call it an experiment? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's an experiment at Lake Norman. That's really cool to see as an angler. It's exciting to see the results because whether it works or whether it doesn't, that gives us a lot moving forward from both sides. If it doesn't work, it'll shut up a lot of guys. I can tell you that much. And if it does work, it'll make all of us happy. So I don't know enough about it. Y'all don't know enough about the program yet to see if it's going to work. But so far, what have y'all seen? And, And you and I talked a little bit about it, that it's not fair to say when you're two years deep, but I guess you take intel what every year on a program like that, and you can kind of get some idea of where it is headed. But things like that, from an angler standpoint, is is really cool to see. Yeah, so we've been trying to figure out something to maybe augment the largemouth bass population at Lake Norman in the light of Alabama bass coming in. So F1s were brought to our attention by anglers at Lake Norman. And, you know, we went into an agreement with some anglers to start stocking F1s, I think we're stocking at like four fish to the acre or something like that. So it's about 120,000 fish a year. So where are you at now as far as a number? So the first year was kind of spit and sputter, you know, getting our act together. So we're only really in the second year. So last year, I think we stocked 40,000 fish. This year, we're stocking 120,000. So we're just getting started. Just so the anglers know, because that's a question that anglers would ask, what size are these fish that are being put in? They're about two inches. Okay. So they're they're freshly spawned fish, two inches in length. We'll put them out in places that we think largemouth should be. We actually asked anglers to mark on maps where they've caught largemouth in the past, where they thought a good largemouth bass habitat were. And so that's where we basically are stocking them all over the lake. And then we'll go back and do electrofishing surveys over the next 10 years. I mean, we'll continue to stock them. And then we'll do electrofishing surveys over the next, you know, five to 10 years to see what effect, if any, one, do F1s exist? Do they still exist in the lake? Have they survived? Two, do they grow any bigger than the largemouth bass that are there? The one take home I will tell people is they're not going to do anything to Alabama bass. This is all about trying to make largemouth bass that are there better. They're not going to go in and crush a bunch of spotted bass or Alabama bass and eat up the spotted bass and Alabama bass yeah. and outcompete them. And F1s are still largemouth. That what you just said needs to be said because I think people have... Yeah, they're not going to do that. And the competition issue that we spent so much time talking about is still the issue. It's still the same. So what we're trying to do is augment what largemouth bass are there and try to make them Improve bigger. the largemouth bass yep, population. that's what we're period. trying to do. 
And we're thinking about taking the show on the road a little bit. We're still in infancy talks on maybe expanding it to a lake that still has Alabama bass, but is maybe a little more nutrient rich than Lake Norman just to see if they, just a different environment because it's experimental to us. It's not a full-fledged stocking program that we're buying into that we're going to grow fish forever in a day like we've done with some of our like mountain trout program or something like that. Not yet. We get 10 years down the road and F1s are all the rage and make largemouth bass so much better than, yeah, we probably will be in that situation where we're stocking F1s in certain locations to augment bass populations. That's just one of a lot of things that I think y'all are doing that's really cool as an angler to see and hear because, I mean, y'all are basically answering the angler's calls and that's a big deal to the bass guys because, you know, I think in the past I've seen wildlife biologists and bass anglers butt heads some and disagree on things and working together is the biggest thing that can be an asset for all of us but through the angler relations you know i know y'all have the r3 program and things Mm -hmm. like that but i think the more we can get together and talk about topics like this and even have a a big group get together or whether it's even online or at a tournament maybe you know where there's a big event like a um, I don't know, what are some of the big tournament trails in the state now? The Carolina Bass Challenge and things yeah. like that. But where those guys are there and they're willing to listen to y'all and y'all are willing to listen to them moving forward, I think. Because being at a tournament and seeing what's weighed in and getting some firsthand intel sure helps y'all too. I know y'all can go do the shocking thing, but being at tournaments and looking at... And we've done some of that. I was going to say, y'all probably do some of that. I think one of the kind of sometimes... The impasses we get to when we're talking with anglers is we're trying to tell anglers what we're seeing. Anglers are trying to tell us what they're seeing. And somehow in that discussion, it's like, well, you're not seeing what I'm seeing. I'm like, I'm hearing you and I'm trying to explain what's <laughs> <I think> <laughs> what I'm seeing in relationship to what you're saying. And I think sometimes it's just a scope issue on one side or the other. And I think it's just a matter of sitting down and talking it out is, I think, the most important thing in that. <laughs> When I started 20 years ago with the Wildlife Commission, I started in the North Central Piedmont, which is bass country. A lot of people fish bass. I mean, that's that and crappier, kind of the two, you know, fish that people go towards. You know, the one thing I noticed was just this lack of communication between bass anglers and us. And we had pretty good communication with our crappy anglers. I mean, a lot of clubs would talk to us and yes, they would fuss at us from time to time and that kind of thing. But from a bass world, I just struggled as a biologist to get a foot in the door to talk to bass anglers. And I don't know if it's been the introduction of Alabama bass or if it's been the F1 Florida rage that's going on in the bass community, but my toe is now in the door. My foot's probably not, but my toe's now in the door where I can have conversations with some bass anglers. And I guess I say all that to say, We as a wildlife commission, and particularly from a fish division perspective, and me being the assistant chief now, I'm all about us talking, whether that's in large groups or little groups or whatever. And people that have worked for me that are listening to the podcast right now are shaking their heads. Yes, because if there's been a soapbox I've been on, this is my soapbox of we have got to talk to one another and we have got to communicate and we've got to listen. We can go in the room with our ideas and your ideas, right, as anglers and biologists. But at the end of the day, we got to come together in some form of an agreement. And what I've been striving to do is try to get people to see us as biologists as we're just human beings working a job, trying to do what's best for the resource. And the vast majority of us fish. 
We love fishing. Right. <laughs> We're not out to be mean to bass anglers or to whatever angler group it might be. We're actually here trying to support what you do. We want you to catch fish. We want you to catch more fish. That's one of the reasons Ben and I started this podcast was to really get down into the weeds with people and show them, hey, look, we're on your team. We might come from a different perspective, but we are on the same team and we need to work together. You know, like Ben said, people have to understand when you're sitting there comparing notes, this is what I've called, this is what you've shot, this is your research, this is my research, that keep an open mind because what we're telling each other is both true. Well, I hope it is. I hope it is. I mean, it's both true. So just don't, it's like the large mouth on the point earlier. You know, guys listening to the podcast, we're talking about spotted bass predominantly living on a main body of water, sitting on shoals. You know, you I mean, you go out to a shoal at Lake Norman and I'll bet you a million dollars that there's a 99.999% chance. But then there's that one angler out there listening. Well, I threw my top water up there and caught a three pound large mouth. To his point, sure, he did. But the other 99 bass he caught were spots, you know, or Alabama bass. But yeah, I mean, what we're telling each other is both the truth and we've got to find a happy medium. So, And the last thing I'll say about this particular part of the topic, we have biologists all over the state. We have 18 biologists basically that are in districts. There's nine districts and there's two biologists in each district. And there is probably not a stretch of water when it comes to bass, whether it be smallmouth, largemouth, spotted bass, Alabama bass, that our group has not worked on. It is the fish or group of fish that we work on the most. We spend the, probably the most amount of time, short of an adramus on the coast in the spring of the year, we spend a vast majority of our time on black bass species. And so I would encourage anglers to get in touch with those biologists. You can contact us at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org and ask us the question, and we will get it to that biologist. And they have data out the wazoo. I mean, like in District 5 where I started, there is 30-plus years of data on bass on you name the body of water. Just name it. We probably have 30-plus years of data on bass. So it's not for us not working on them. We have worked on them. We don't always communicate that very well, but that's what we're trying to work on and get better at. Well, and then from an English standpoint, that's something cool too that I would always want to see the historical charts or historical data on a, on a lake that went from full of grass to no grass, back to grass, from thread fins to bluebacks. And y'all have access yeah. to stuff like that. And as a fisherman, that's really cool because I can only tell you what I've seen, how it's changed the fishery because how I've had to catch fish throughout different fisheries and like Lake Murray in South Carolina is not North Carolina related, but like we were talking about used to have grass 30 years ago, then it went to no grass and it blew back introduction and it just changed the dynamic of it drastically. And what's funny about that is from your perspective, it has changed it dramatically because you're fishing for, right? Yep. But from a biological perspective and the population as a whole, my guess is Hasn't changed that much. Didn't change as much. Fish behavior has probably changed. Fish behavior has changed dramatically because the habitats have changed and things have moved around, right? A really good example of that in North Carolina is Harris. Oh, Sharon Harris, you know, just south of Raleigh. It's lost its grass, which yeah. we're trying to put grass back in. It's lost its grass, and anglers are just like, this place has gone downhill dramatically. What to the grass there? Well, it was getting out on its own. The water quality has changed there. Okay. So hydrilla was being slowly diminished. And then... Just from the water quality killing it. And then water quality department stocked grass carp in there to try to get rid of the what was remaining of it. 
because it is an invasive and it was so going down the river. before people are quick to blame y'all for sticking grass carp in a lake, you clarified that because that was something that I think us as anglers, again, misinterpretation or something, yeah. we're misled. We're thinking, oh, the wildlife guys stuck grass carp in there to get rid of the grass. That's not the case. We're not the agency that's responsible for invasive aquatic weeds. That's the Division of Water Quality that does that work. Right. And so they have aquatic weeds that they have to get rid of. Hydrilla to being, improve water quality. To though. improve water quality and to stop the spread from places that they don't want it to go. And right. so they'll stock grass carp there to do that. And so with all that happening, that's what happened at Harrison. You know, the fish kind of, they didn't go anywhere. The fish are still there and the fish are still spawning and the fish are still growing really fast and all that stuff. And you can look at our graphs and it changed a little bit biologically, but not really a lot. I mean, it's still a lot of big fish at Sharon Harris, but the way anglers are going to have to approach it has changed dramatically. Sure. And so when we get those comments of, well, the fishery has changed, well, yes, the fishery has changed from your perspective because you're fishing for them. From a biological perspective, the fish hasn't really changed all that much. Yeah. It's only when we get these invasives or a fish disease or something like something dramatic that really makes a difference in a population. And so our job is not only to share that information with you and show you that, well, the fish are still there. They're just in a different place probably. But it's also our job to go in and try to get that habitat back. So at Harris, for example, we're literally every summer going out planting plants. And our goal is to put plants and get those plants back in the lake. Now, these are natives. They're not invasive plants. Is to get that back going. But that takes time. An invasive can do something quick. A native, it takes it some time. You know, it's planting vegetation is a long game. It's 5, 10, 15 years down the road before we get back to where we were. Do we have time for me to ask a question about an invasive grass at Lake Norman? Sure. So there was eelgrass in the lake? Yes. I actually caught fish out of it. That's yes. why I know. It's not there anymore. <laughs> okay, it's gone. It's yeah. completely gone. Yes. 100%. Maybe not 100%, but it's not what it was. Okay. I just wanted to ask that question. And it's native. It's not so an invasive was, plant. The eelgrass was actually eelgrass native. Eelgrass is native to North Carolina. Yeah. Now, that species to Lake itself Norman? might not have been. Maybe not Lake Norman, but... It is what we would consider a native plant. It's not an invasive plant. Okay, got you. But grass carp were there because of hydrilla and landowner issues and all that jazz. And so plants at Lake Norman are going to struggle. It's going to yeah. be a struggle to ever get vegetation in Lake Norman unless it's an invasive. Well, and I assumed exactly what you just said about landowner issues. There's a lot of money floating around Lake Norman. There's a lot sure. of people. There's different user groups. Yeah, correct. Know. It's not all anglers. There's boaters. and That's a very, very recreational lake. And then yes. recreational, I don't mean just fishing. Like, That's right. All you got to do is go out there one sure. day in July and <laughs> witness it. Well, I think we'll go to our questions. We're loving having all the questions that people have been sending us. Once again, you can reach us at twobaldbiologists at ncwildlife.org and ask Ben and I questions. And if we don't have the answers, we will send it to someone smarter than us, which there's a lot of people in this world that are. Thank goodness. Yes. I'm glad I don't have all the answers. But we've been really shocked and surprised, to be honest, with the really good response that we've had from folks. And just keep sending your questions in. We'll read some of them online on the podcast from time to time. But if you don't get the answer to your question, maybe send us a reminder, but please be patient because we're dealing with a lot of emails. Also, I'll just let you guys know, like we do inland fish. Yeah. So we're getting a lot of questions about flounder and dolphin and 
things that we just don't have jurisdiction over. And it's, I don't want you to feel that we won't answer your question. It's just that this doesn't fall under our purview. So if I tell you to call somebody else, it's not because I'm trying to pass the book. It's because the someone else is more knowledgeable about it. They're than the me. subject matter. Expert. All right. So just so you know, if you want to ask me about Flounder, that's great. And I'll be happy to give you the number of the folks to call. So, so our first question comes from Joel and he says, Hey guys, I enjoyed the first podcast. We try very hard to minimize injury and stress to the stripers, but occasionally they will still swallow the hook. Sometimes if we can't get it out without obviously harming the fish, we'll just clip the line and let it go. Can the fish survive this? Or are we just kidding ourselves? What I'll tell you is credit to you for trying to do the best you can. And that's really all any of us can do. If you hook the soft tissue in the throat of the fish, that's obviously going to be a higher source of mortality than you hook a fish in the hard parts of its mouth. However, if you yank and tug and really cause a lot of trauma to the soft tissues, you're just increasing the mortality chances. So I think what you're doing is right on par. It's in line with what I would do in an issue where I was concerned for the fish's survival. So can the fish survive? Yes. Will it? It's no guarantee. But all we can do as anglers is the best we can do. And sometimes, you know, there's going to be a little mortality as a result of our angling. And that's okay. That's part of what's going on. So we've already talked about that today that mortality is not a bad thing in certain situations. Right. I can tell you, you know, removing hooks can be a tedious process depending on how they're hooked. But having the right tools is extremely important sure. too. A lot of people don't carry a good set of needle nose. I carry a good set of needle nose that actually have the 90 degree on the end of them. And I mean, if that fish is gushing blood and things like that, it might be a little bit different ballgame. But if you can actually go in backwards behind the gill plate without injuring the gills or anything like that, I've been able to successfully remove a lot of hooks with the right tools going in backwards like that, as opposed to going down in their throat and getting in their crushers, digging it out making them bleed worse. When I watch y'all in tournaments, I see a lot of your guys, that's what they do if they deep hook one, they'll come up from underneath to get it out. Yeah, come from underneath. And if all else fails, if it's a small hook, like a drop shot style hook or a little finesse hook or something, you know, and I feel like I have to cut it, that's one thing. But the last thing I want to leave is a big old half ounce jig head or something in a fish's gut. To Ben's point, I've caught some fish multiple times with leaders and hooks actually coming out their rear ends. And so... They can pass it, but do they all? I'm sure some of them end up dying and things like that. So um, try to take care of them the best we can. But having a good set of tools on the boat, I would always keep a good set of needle nose and look at some of those little 90 degrees too because they can really help out. Sure. So our next question, Ben, it comes from Will out of Wake Forest. He asks, so we're getting a lot of people moving to North Carolina and our population is increasing. I don't know if y'all paid attention to that, but there's people moving to North Carolina. A lot of people live here. Holy smokes. His question is, that population increase, does it have an effect on increased tournaments and fishing pressure? And what does that do to fish populations? That's a can of worms. I think this is a whole podcast. That's a whole podcast. Yeah, that's a loaded question if I ever heard one. Just to be brief, (laughs) it definitely has an impact. It does. Even if we're catching release anglers and you still have an impact and you're kidding yourself if you think you don't. It may be a lot smaller footprint, but it's still a footprint. And as there's more footprints, there's more impacts. And I think it's just important for us to be aware and be as conscientious as you can, like in the first question, to try to protect the fish as best we can 
as we move forward. Yeah. But it's definitely impact. That definitely goes to back to what we were just talking about at Harris with the reduction in weeds of hydrilla. Yeah, but look at what's happened in the triangle with all the people that are now moving into the triangle area and people out on the water. And Harris is only 4,000 acres. It's not like it's a huge body of water. It's not a big lake. And you put all those people, not only are you putting fishermen on the lake and they're seeing more and more baits and more and more fish are being caught, but you're putting out a lot of boaters and there's a lot of boating traffic. And what effect that has on fish, it varies from place to place. So, yeah. Well, and taking care of the resource, being careful about uh, what comes out of your boats, because the more boats on the water, the more pollution that goes in the lake and the more water quality drops, I'm sure. So being conscious about taking care of the water, whether you're a fisherman or just out there for pleasure, you yeah, know, riding around. For sure. Just one last thing. I know we're trying to wrap this up, but as far as your fishing goes, you, know, you may have to come up with a few more tricks and try a few more different areas. <laughs> it might not be as easy as it once was. Especially some of the community holes and things. I mean, the community holes get a lot of pressure. That's why they're called community holes. But with population increase, they're getting more and more. So you may have to do a little out-of-the-box thinking and trying some new techniques to get the same level of success. Because the biologist may be telling you that the population hadn't changed, but you may be saying, well, my catch rates are way down. And it could just be because the old tricks don't work like they used to. Yeah. So our last question is specifically for you, Ben, because it says for Ben. So I'm not going to answer this one. It's from Robert. And Robert asks, would you provide more guidance to use a fluke for striped bass? You're the expert, and I'm not, so I'm just going to sit over here and shut up and listen to what you got to say. Was it for bass or striped bass? Striped bass. Okay, so, yeah, I grew up in welding, fishing a fluke for striped bass, and the cool thing about a fluke is it's kind of like a jerkbait. It's the right size. It's the right presentation. A hungry fish is going to eat it. Like, they're designed to do that. So you can fish it on a jig head. You can fish it on a weightless worm hook. What was those jig heads you just gave me, Matt? To try? Pulse jigs. Pulse jig. So it's the little shaky head kind of thing. You can fish them on anything, and it's just the right size and the right bait. So really, how you fish it depends a lot on the conditions that you're in. If you're fishing fast current, you're going to want something that sinks a lot heavier or a lot faster. If you're fishing less current, you're going to want something lighter and something higher up in the water column. So it really just depends on the place that you're at. Also, you know, if you're fishing clearer waters, I would go with more natural colors. If you're fishing more after a high flood, you can go with either brighter or darker colors, however the case may be. So just something to give you a little more contrast. But Matt, you got anything you want to add to that? You know, as far as flukes are concerned, I like pearl. And if pearl doesn't work, I like pearl. And if pearl doesn't work, I like pearl. That sounds like good <laughs> advice. Seems like a positive. <laughs> no, it seems like uh, early in the morning hours, late in the evenings, I do like a pearl color. And then think outside the box, though, like Ben said, keep your options open because I've caught them on, uh, when you're talking flukes and soft plastic dirt baits, I've caught them a lot of fish on natural colors like a green pumpkin and things like that, too especially throughout the day, you know, once the sun gets up high. Golden brim is a sleeper color for stripers. So is that like a golden shiner kind of? No, it's like a root beer with gold flake. Oh, okay. So I like the green pumpkin magic, which is like a green pumpkin with a purple and gold flake in it. I don't see any it. reason why that would Probably work something either. similar. But like Ben said, the fluke is an extremely versatile bait. And there's, we could sit here and talk for days about how many different ways there are to rig one. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you can catch multiple species. I know we're talking stripers, but that's the fun thing about a fluke. You can catch oh, any predator. they work for bass, too. Work yeah. for just about anything. <laughs> yep. yep. Well, 
I have thoroughly enjoyed today. Learned a lot from Matt. Glad Matt could be here. Appreciate you being Likewise, here. Likewise. I have learned a lot today. We'll do it again. That sounds good. Well, we appreciate y'all. Send your emails. I know we're going to get a lot of bass questions and comments on this. If you're a coastal bass angler, I particularly want to hear from you because I need to build my relationship up with you guys. So feel free to overwhelm us with comments. We'll get to them as we can. Thank you for listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. For questions and topic suggestions, please email us at twoballbiologists at ncwildlife.org.